Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to week 47 of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're talking about It Happened on Fifth Avenue. It did. It happened right there on Fifth Avenue, Caroline. <laughs> I wasn't sure what was going to happen on Fifth Avenue. It's freaking it, me out. It happened. It's That's it. all you need to know is it happened. Thing, right? Uh, before we get into this movie and talking about who wrote it and who directed it, who was in it and all that good stuff. We'll talk about the plot and the cast, whether it was a Christmas movie or a Ratings. Yes, I figured at week 47 we should set out a uh, general outline for people <laughs> listening. It's time we let them know what to expect. Uh, uh, week to week. But before we get to that, though, yeah. Caroline, mm. I don't know if you've done the math, but this is week 47. Week yeah. 48 means there's only five movies left before we hit Christmas Day. I was feeling queasy just saying week 47. Like that was feeling like I actually had this like little moment in my head where I was like, man, soon I'm going to say it's week 52 of the 52 weeks of Christmas podcast. And it's going to make me sad. That episode is going to come out on Christmas Day. So it is, uh, I mean, we're it, no better way to really feel like where we are in space and time then 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 thinking about that i mean i i've looked at the spreadsheet and i'm down to just the last couple of rows on the old spreadsheet believe it i cannot believe it but it also (laughs) did make me think since we have so diligently caught up on releasing these episodes to the present time i think we should maybe give the people either in episode or week 48 or week 49 i think we should give them uh, 25 days of Christmas movie countdown. What do you Ooh, think about that? Like a suggested watching list? Yeah, I think a Caroline okay. suggestions and a Mike suggestions for. Oh, God, tw- we're not even going to combine ours. We have to make them individually. I'm thinking maybe we have like you give like the, like the red pill, blue pill kind of thing. You know, people can have two oh, choices. Geez. <laughs> feels extreme <laughs> that has, has such a kind of negative connotation now that it did i think in in 2000 or 1999 but uh yeah right. I, I, I was thinking maybe well I'm, I'm sure there will be some days where it'll match up because you and i have generally been on the same page i think this entire year uh, on movies but yeah i thought that might be something fun to give the old listeners to guys i'm i'm hitting the caroline with this literally while we're recording with no <laughs> no foreknowledge because i want you to get her authentic reaction to it so oh i'm excited to do it Mike, I'd be happy to give our listeners 25 suggestions for the rest of their Christmas holiday viewing. Happy to do it. So week 48 comes out the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Really, people mm-hmm. are going to be kicking into high gear for their 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 Christmas and movie and holiday watching and, and, and all of that. So somewhere between week 48 and week 49, I think we should you know do something a little bit something on on an episode, maybe yeah. at the end of an episode. And maybe I mean, we'll- it'd be weird if we called individual listeners like we should just tell them on the podcast yeah guys uh, email us your phone numbers we will leave you. <laughs> we'll call you with a personalized 25 days just for you 
Yeah. I, you let, let us know five things you like and five things you don't like, and we will personalize 25 days. And it's all free. We do that for here. Yes. When when I call you, I'll say, this is Caroline. What's your favorite color? And this is Mike. <laughs> Tonight, we're telling you to watch. Yes. Maybe we'll call them daily, and you'll say, and this is Mike. And tonight, we're telling you to watch Love Actually. It'll just be like right. a pre-recorded thing we like put in there. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Or like those YouTube like channels. Like movie phone. Yeah, right. Or like the YouTube channels that just use the recorded like Siri voice for like yes. the entire narration. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So, tonight's <laughs> movie pick from Caroline and Mike is... <laughs> Love Actually. <laughs> They only say it weird. It was a miracle on 34th Street. They always say, like, my mom's like, Mimi, Kupstas. Exactly. Mimi. Clothing donation. That equals clothing donation. I get Michael Caputo all the time. That's what mine is like. Michael Caputo. Caputo. That's hilarious. All right. You know what, Mike? We better tell these people something about it happened on Fifth Avenue because they're so nerved up right now. But like what happened on Fifth Avenue? Well, I could tell you what happened on Fifth Avenue was that it started with a story by Herbert Clyde Lewis and Frederick Stefani. And it was a screenplay by Everett Freeman. It was directed by Roy Del Ruth, who sounds like someone who's really famous. But I looked at the movies he's known for. And then other than directing a segment of Ziegfeld Follies a couple of years before this, I didn't really... I didn't see anything that really super stood out to me, but it sounds like a name like you should know, Roy Del Ruth. <laughs> so this one, I'm feeling weird about this release date. I mean, it was released April 19th. Oh, you guys, we always red flag those. Red 19- flag, red flag, red flag. 1947 and um you know that that should lead us to think it's not a christmas movie but i mean this one i think is is a false red flag so here's the thing so the production schedule for this movie uh was done in the late summer the filming for this movie was done in the late summer into early october of 1946 which makes it feel like it is supposed to get released in the Christmas window season. The, the fact that it climaxes at Christmas time is all like, if you look at the production notes, kind of, it feels like they originally meant to release it in that 1946 Christmas window, but for whatever reason, end up pushing it out. It's actually Easter weekend that it comes out in 1947. Unknown reason. I, I looked for, I looked to see if I could find it online. I couldn't find any reason other than people noting the production schedule made it seem like they were trying to get it out for Christmas. Maybe they just couldn't get it done in time. I don't know. But uh, mm. yeah, definite red flag. But in this is a, I think this is an exception that maybe you don't have to uh, have it as a red flag. So. Okay, well, and the budget for this one was $1.2 million, and at box office it made $1.8 million. That was yeah. a rough estimate. So. Uh, this movie went over budget about three dollars $400,000, uh, so to get to that $1.2 million tag. Uh, yeah, but it did make its money back and, and then some, so it was, a, it was a nice, tidy little hit. There, there's some actually interesting history with this one, because Frank Capra's uh, Liberty Films in 1945, uh, it's a, Liberty Films is his brand new production company, they acquire the rights to make this movie. They option the rights to make this movie. It was going to be the first production that Liberty Films makes. Uh, later in 1945, Frank Capra, though, he does a swerve and de- decides to direct something else. You have a guess on what he decided to direct the side, instead of It Happened on Fifth Avenue? Uh, is it It's a Wonderful Life? 
It is It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. Frank Capra, he uh, then sells the rights to this movie because he's not going to make it. He's going to go make It's a Wonderful Life. He sells it to Roy Del Ruth, who acquires the story as a producer and director. And he goes on to make this movie uh, to come out in April of 47. So this was this was almost Frank Capra's 46, 47 holiday movie, which would have been wild. Are you ready for my one sentence plot line here? Yes, which I did not put in our notes. I don't know why I skipped it, but there you go. I've got it. Ready? All right. Two homeless men move into a mansion while its owners are wintering in the South. I feel like that misses <laughs> that misses some of the joie de vivre of what this movie is about. I feel like it really does, but that's what it says. So, And two homeless men makes it uh, fascinating. Yeah, just the use of homeless also is uh, is it feels like such a, an anachronistic term because that's just not how we talk about people anymore. But uh, I want to talk about the cast, though, because this movie is remarkable for a generally not well-known cast, though you did a little not I wouldn't say full on squealing, but what? <laughs> well, I mean, you 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 pegged Don DeFore as Jim Bullock. Uh, right away, which was a, a face I recognized, but you knew right where he was from. Yeah, well, I recognized him from Hazel. That was where I, I knew he was the male lead in Hazel. And um, I hesitate to call him the dad or the father exactly, but but the male lead. Um, and his face and voice is just really recognizable for me. But you knew him, you did some reading and found him in Ozzy and Harriet, right? Yes, he's in Ozzy and Harriet uh, before he gets to Hazel. Neither of those were big shows for me. I'm aware of them. I know their name. I maybe caught an episode here or there in Nick at Night growing up. Uh, where I think Same. so many of our generation caught these kinds of shows that was all through Nick at Night, really. I did a lot of babysitting when I was like much younger, probably than I should have been babysitting. And Nick at Night had that's when Mr. Ed and Hazel and some of those were still on. And those were like super safe. Don't scare me while I'm in someone else's house kind of shows. Oh, sure. No, I, I get it. I, it. Super safe is a great way to describe the programming at Nick at Night. I mean, the Green Acres alone, I think Green Acres maybe was their edgiest show growing oh, up. Oh, yeah. I, I felt like um, <laughs> that genre. That's funny. Uh, darling. Anyway, uh, Gail Storm playing Trudy O'Connor, Victor Moore as Aloysius T. McKeever, Charles Ruggles as Michael J. O'Connor. The For me, the wild thing was Alan Hale popping up in this, Alan Hale Jr. popping up in this as Whitey. He was so recognizable, too, though. So as soon as I saw him, he's such a barrel-chested man, and yes. he's so big that I was like, oh, you, I recognize you, Skipper. Wild, because you think of the Skipper, who I guess I would define as a barrel he is. He's such a barrel chest. He's got such a dad belly, though. You know, the skipper. When he's was... older, but I feel like the the width of him is is remarkable. No, I'm talking about Gilgan's Island Skipper. Yeah, it's wild to in 30 years, 25 years from when this movie comes out to when Gilligan's Island is probably in its heyday. How much older he got, but he's still so identifiable. When I saw it, I was like, "We have hit the time machine." It is crazy <laughs> to me. What did you think of Victor Moore as Aloysius T. McKeever? He's He's for, you know, ostensibly the lead of this movie or at least the central character of this movie. Mm, OK, so I would have said that this is actually an ensemble cast for the most part. So I feel like there that, yes, he is the first character we meet. And definitely he is almost almost has like a narrator type role because of how he's kind of guiding us like through the story. Yeah, he does. And he, and he definitely like pushes 
each character down their path. Like every time they deal with Aloysius in some way, they're being given some sort of advice or or they're being pushed to go in one direction or another. He's definitely like the rule maker too, like the manager of the house. So there's something about that that creates this narrator type, you know, all-knowing character basically. So what did I think about him? At first, I thought he was like very like a caricature of a character, if you will. So he didn't seem like a real person. He just seemed very over the top and very he had all these like nuances about him that were very like funny and weird. And and, you know, he had his dog and everything. So I wasn't really sure what to make of him. I am classifying him in my brain as the Clarence of this movie. I mean, he the way that he just like will, will bop into a room and give some little nugget of advice or he seems to be able to see relationships in a way that, you know, and, and will speak about them out loud to the people in a way that like makes suddenly it all becomes clear what they should do. So he has a very like guardian angel-esque vibe. I'm so happy you said that because I, I spoilers for about 20 minutes from now, but I thought this was a Christmas <laughs> movie. I, I think there's enough here to make it a Christmas movie. But in my head, the the rewrite I would give this movie to really solidify it is... If at the end of it, as he's walking down the street with Sammy, if he kind of flies off or sprouts wings or somehow identifies as an angel, because he is such an angel uh, slash fairy godfather kind of role here, you know, it feels like something where it, it, it turns out he was placed here just to put all these people together and teach them the lessons they needed to learn at this very specific and particular time, you know, or or like a series of movies where every season it turned out he took people in and kind of care took them onto a better path in life. Uh, he had such a strong angel Christmas movie vibe to him. I wish that had been explicit. In my head canon, he is, in fact, an angel. He actually doesn't exist on this earth other than for these kinds of things he comes down and appears. But I wish they had made that explicit because it felt so much like that's what it was. I feel like the fact that he doesn't work and he doesn't have to sort of exist in the same world as everybody it. else. Right. Yeah, he's just yeah, beyond in, it. Yeah. In that way, even if he's not, you know, truly angelic in, in that, you know, living, you know, in heaven kind of way, he still feels like he's from another world world because he just has nothing to do with our day-to-day how he functions isn't you know the rat race that everyone else is dealing with he doesn't think about rent he's not worried about a job he's not worried about where he's going to eat that night like he just has these these ways about him that he's always taken care of and he's perfectly happy and he's also got this like code right that he lives by and you, mm-hmm. you mentioned how he is you know he's the one setting the rules it's an it, it's an interesting thing where you know he fully acknowledges he you know is breaking and entering and squatting in this house but he he runs the house in such a way as and i think he sees a duty to manage the house and you know and i think he even says explicitly in the beginning of the movie that he leaves the house even better off than it was you know this idea that by wearing the clothes you know yes, you know he's they, airing them out he's airing them out and he dusts the furniture every now and then and you know he's keeping the house having a life to it in its otherwise dormant dormant time uh, and he takes that role very seriously and, and and i think it comes off a little smugly and a little you know pretentiously in how he acts especially the way he treats mike when mike is just mike and not being revealed yet as as michael j o'connor but i realized though that i think most of his 
persnickety this is that he's using himself as this cautionary tale where he doesn't want them to end up with him, especially in matters of love. Uh, there, there's a great scene. I, 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 we can play it. I pulled the clip for it. I think it's a pretty good scene where he's trying to talk to Mike and Mary about the virtues of falling in love and getting married and, and not ending up like him. Except that I hope I didn't give you the impression that I was opposed to a man and woman falling in love. Now, you take this bed. It was made for a man and his wife. Only the wife is in Florida. And the husband is in Virginia. You know, when you think of all the people who fall out of love, even though they have everything, it's kind of nice to think of people like you falling in love. Mike? It was very sweet. And there's whole parts to him that continuously impart all this wisdom. You know, I, I feel like what you were speaking about taking care of the house, I think he has a real respect that you guess, I guess you think don't doesn't come along with someone who is squatting or breaking a law to be there in the first place. So you kind of assume like, oh, well, you must not be actually... Uh, you know, a, a respectful person or something like that. But he's, but he is very respectful. When he gets all like nerved up about the fact that that they've used up all the food in the pantry, and he's like, whenever I do this, you know, I make sure that you can't even tell that I like took any and and all that stuff. Like he's very concerned about the resources of the house and not using everything up and not making it look like anyone was there. Not even from like a covering his tracks kind of way, but just in a he doesn't take he doesn't take more than he needs, right. But at the same time, though, he also doesn't do any of the physical labor to earn back the money. That's where that's the that's the scene where he says supervises, and then we cut to watching him yeah. or supervise Mike, you know, shoveling the walkway. Which again, all of this goes towards this angel thing when he's when he's telling the story about take this bed for instance, a, a man in Virginia and a woman in Florida not in this bed together. It almost felt like he was winking at them, like he knew. I, I there there's such a there's such a, a take on this movie where he knows all along. Uh, about Mike and Mary, and he's talking as if he doesn't, but he knows, and he's giving them a parable using themselves as mm -hmm. the lesson to be learned. Like, remove yourself and imagine you two are a third party that we don't know. Isn't the lesson obvious that they should be living in this bed together and not apart, you know, by, you know, hundreds and thousands of miles? Th that scene continues, and I just want to continue playing the clip because I, I jumped ahead to the don't use me as a use me as a cautionary tale part. I've been thinking, why don't you and Mary get married? Married? It might be the best thing in the world for both of you. Might make something of your lives. Maybe it's too late. Oh, it's never too late. Now you take Mike here. He's a nice enough fellow. But what has he made of his existence? Absolutely nothing. Now, Mary is a fine woman and a fine cook. Responsibility would be the best thing for both of you. And marriage means responsibility. Whatever you do, don't end up like me. You know, it's hitting on this one of the movie's themes uh, in particular that there are more important things than money. And your family and your friends and your loved ones should be your priority. At the end of the day, don't make your decisions 
based on money and what is good for your bottom line. You know, make your decisions based on what's good for your heart and your soul and your family and your loved ones. Ah, that's a great movie theme. And I like that he's he's drawing these explicit. He It's not nuanced. He I mean, he's coming out and telling them very plainly and baldly. You, you have made poor decisions up till now take some responsibility for your lives and for each other take care of each other i think that's what he means by responsibility do right by each other and your family i love that message i was taking this entire movie as like a whole family ebenezer scrooge christmas carol lesson mm, mm. like every single one of them was getting to live outside of themselves outside of their lot in life outside of where everyone already thought they knew everything about them and they were getting to start sort of fresh and have all these interactions with the world like having mike actually have to do manual labor and and having mary go back to cooking for him and cooking for the family and and Trudy even having to um, no longer be a child, but but looking more as like an adult and trying to think about her life and where she's at and what she needs to be doing. Everything was very Scrooge for me, uh, very Christmas Carol. And and Aloysius was various ghosts at various points of time and, and sort of pointing out, like, do you see what I'm looking at? Do you see what you need to change? Do you see what your life could be like or or is like or or choices you have made, how you could change them, that kind of thing? And even if he didn't identify them as the as the original people, like he didn't know per se their actual sins. Still, he was like, whatever choices you made, you're you're here on on Christmas with me in an empty, you know, boarded up house. Something you've done has led you here, um, and and the path was was not the path you should have been on. So, how are you going to change that? I mean, I, I I agree, I agree wholeheartedly. I think wholeheartedly, I think this story works. And again, we're definitely imparting things that are maybe not in the movie but i think both of us it hit us with this christmas feel the idea of him maybe being this angel this clarence figure this christmas carol which i i agree on a christmas carol a whole family christmas carol story you know it's kind of undercover boss right you know that cbs show undercover boss where you have to I go do, yeah. and see what your employees kind of think of you and your the job that you provide them without them realizing it's you i mean that's really mike and trudy and mary's journey here that dinner scene it's so funny it's so awkward but it's also so funny and watching mary delight in them all taking shots and jabs at mike but then she chokes on her on her you know uh slum gully and when you know it comes around to you know i've heard she's not any better you know not much better yeah. than him yeah and that's great but it's it's interesting how few people how rarely people stop to think about how they are perceived and that's not always a bad thing. I very firmly believe in living your life not based on what people think of you, but there is a utility in knowing how you come off to people for your own well-being and your own good karma. I think there is a utility in in having that secret view of this is you know being being an attendee at your own funeral kind of thing right that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a, a huge trope of what would people say about you at your funeral you know they're getting this arn varner's view of what people think of the second richest man in the world he thinks pretty highly of himself other people think less highly I appreciated the use of his name when, you know, they are always speaking of Michael J. O'Connor and it's it's always that. It's always his full name. Mm -hmm. And then when he is actually being 
just the regular guy in his own house being called Mike. And man, the amount of times I don't think that Aloysius ever speaks to him without starting off Mike, blah, 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 Mike, blah, 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 blah. Like it's reinforced so hard of just being, you know, not this big ostentatious name. I mean, it, you're Mike. You are you are my friend, Mike. You are a guy, Mike, who lives in this house. Like it is so much more I familiar. <laughs> I, saw, I thought you were talking to me you're there just for a second. No. Oh. <laughs> but the amount of times that he he says it, I think it's important because I think that it's such a, a familiar, friendly name. And he's always held off with this this um, at arm's length. Like there's no photographs of him. Like that was one of the questions that uh-huh. when I was trying to describe this movie to other people, they were like, I don't really get it. How was there not a photograph in the house of the family? And I said, that's the thing. There wasn't. There wasn't even a photograph of Trudy the child that ever revealed it, that this was the family. And so that's kind of all you need to know about this family was that not only was there not a a photograph of Michael J. O'Connor, but not of the family, not even of his kid. You know, that level of it's not about the house, it's about who lives inside of it kind of vibe that Aloysius is constantly trying to to impart on them. Again, and without and without nuance, you know, you're 100 percent right. I mean, when when when. When Mike says, oh, you don't want to stay at the, you know, the Gutendorf house, the, the plumbing is notoriously bad there. This house is better than that because, uh, you know, McKeever is is feeling sad, you know, feel with the deal having fallen through the sadness that's set up on the house. You know, it's making him want to get out, you know, and he, he says a house is only what its occupants make it. That's, again, one of the movie themes. Michael J. O'Connor and, and Mary O'Connor, to an extent, I mean, she's gone. She's down in Palm Beach. He doesn't live his life for his family. He lives his life for his money. That that line that Mary says to him accuses him of infidelity. And I lean forward. I was like, oh, we're about to get some spice here in 1947. And then she makes the point that it's, you know, he was having an affair with his money. He had fallen in love with his money. I, mm. I, I sat back with uh, with such a satisfied air. That's such a great line. And a great way to describe people of this condition who, uh, you know, uh, have prioritized their bank account over their family and their loved ones and their very friends. Ebenezer, very Ebenezer. I mean, think of what's what's her name in in the flashback? Is it is it Mary or it's Al- Alice or Carol? Alice? Mm. It's something like it's something he has like a girlfriend. That. He, has he has a girlfriend. And, and right when he's at Fizzywicks. Uh, or Fozzie Wicks, depending on which version you're watching. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, and he had love in his life, but uh, just a few years later, he fell in love with his money instead of with the girl. Michael J. O'Connor is well down that road. It's cost him his wife. It's largely cost him Trudy. It's cost him, he's got this mausoleum, this house that just lays dormant, and it's not about the house, it's about its occupants. The girlfriend's name is Belle, just as a reminder. Belle. Belle. So, so let's add in this element of Trudy. Now, Trudy is a runaway from her finishing school, and I think that it's interesting to start the story off that way, because she comes in on the scene and, and under understands what's happening very quickly and is willing to play along so that she herself does not get found out. I think she's also amused by it, you know? I think ultimately, yes. But I think at first, I mean, of course, she doesn't want the police called because she wants to be doing her own thing here. Like she's just trying to live under the radar as well. I thought 
thought one thing that was really surprising was her relationship with her dad. I did not see it coming when they, when they got in the car the first time together and she just blathers out everything. Like there's two men and they're living in the house and blah, 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 blah and just tells everything. I think she was amused by it. That's why I, I really, she yeah. didn't see, she didn't see the issue in it. She, the house isn't being used. Why shouldn't we let people here? And of course, Michael J. O'Connor, I think most adults, most especially dads or moms would be like, what? <laughs> there are two men living in our house, but she's a kid though. And she's like, yeah, what's the big deal? Like uh, our house is giant. We could afford to have two people who are homeless otherwise living at our house. It, it could have been happening right now because I feel like that's exactly what like a college student would act like. You uh-huh. know, it'd be like, be be more woke, mom and dad. They right. they needed some place to stay and and that kind of thing with most parents being like, oh, that's that's terribly frightening. Um, but were you surprised that Mike was so willing to go along with her? Was like won over by her so quickly. She really only had to say two or three sentences about, you know, the fact that we always do things your way. I want you to go along with me on this, basically so that you can meet this man that I'm in love with. I was surprised, but then I was reminded that there is a particular relationship between fathers and their daughters prevalent in in tv and film and also in real life i think plays out quite often i I think a lot of mike's character and his arc or his michael persona is not even necessarily that he made a choice like a conscious choice as much as he just fell into a life where he didn't stop uh the opposite choice you know I, i don't think he really ever stopped and thought about the fact that he had lost his wife because of his love of money or that he was losing his daughter because he had shipped her off to a finishing school when faced with that like she puts him on the spot in the car it's the first time that maybe he's even thought about it and so i think he go when he goes along with it i think it's more like all right i'll play along like i want i want whatever it takes to get you back to finishing school whatever it takes you whatever <laughs> it takes to get you over whatever is happening here i'll do it because i don't know that he's ever really stopped to think about it before that's the impression i get he's not really stopped to think about what his personal life looks like the shambles that his family life is actually in. I think there was one line that really stuck out to me that I think would win over most dads, I think, I think, or at least the dads, and I'm saying dads, not like fathers, biological fathers, but dads, people who actually listen to your kids and stuff like that. When she says, I I was, I'm lonely, Mm. you know, like mom's gone, you're gone, I'm lonely. I felt like, I think he heard that. I think that hit his heart. And that was when he was willing to be like, Okay, I'll I'll sit beside you and walk this walk with you because I don't like I I don't know where this is going to lead. I have no idea what's going to happen, but they also did which is super sonic tropey. If you have money and you're about to meet somebody who doesn't know you have money, then there's always the agreed upon rich family sitch where they say, don't let on that we have money, dad. Don't tell him who you are because otherwise I'll never know if he loves me or if he just loves the pocketbook. So there's always that. We've seen that in so many movies where they're like, don't tell that you actually have money. So that setup also worked for me that it was like, okay, he's not going to tell who he is to Jim because we've all got to figure out if Jim loves Trudy just because she's Trudy and not because this house and this money comes with. 
I, yeah, and I, you know, listen, I give Mike a lot of credit because he goes along with this charade far <laughs> longer than, and, and, you know, I'm a pretty roll with it kind of guy. And I, I, I can't imagine what I wouldn't do for my kid if, especially if I was asked so plainly. And you raise a great point that she says, I'm lonely. Again, I don't think he's ever really thought about it. I don't think he's ever stopped to think about the emotional welfare of his daughter. So it's not until she puts it in front of his face like it's a, a contract that he's trying to close a deal on that he stops and, and says, oh, of course. Well, if you're lonely, I'm going to go along with it. It's not that he's against doing it. It's just that he's never stopped to think about it. So when when posed with it, uh, you know, he's going to do what what his daughter wants him to. He puts up with it far longer and he puts up with a very condescending mckeever because obviously aloysius doesn't know or he does and is trying to teach him a lesson depending on your take um you know far longer than i think most dads especially most dads of this era you know this is this is not too long before the roaring 50s and dad you know rules the roost when he gets home from work his paper his pipe his dog at his feet and you know he watches what he wants he gets the dinner that he wants like that whole version of america is 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 on the horizon the dawn is rising on that era so i think it's impressive that he goes along for it so well but also i agree with you i love the setup of you know jim i have to find out if jim truly loves me if for nothing else you get a very funny scene in the tailor shop i want to play the scene for you because (laughs) this had me laughing i watched it a couple of times it made me laugh every time the 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 conversation about why his fancy wool coat is of no good use or value to the tailor had me rolling let's listen to the clip your suit is all wool why certainly it's all wool oh that's bad wool is bad look when the moths are hearing i got here an all wool suit one moth tells the other they're coming for a banquet they're bringing their friends pretty soon i got here a moth convention a spray gun I gotta buy, insecticide I gotta buy. All night long I'm staying in spring. I'm not coming home. My wife is getting mad. She's leaving for Reno. She's getting a divorce. What am I getting? Custody of the moths. Alimony I'm paying. Payments I'm missing. To jail I'm going. My business I'm losing. I'm a bum. All because you are bringing in here an all wool suit. <laughs> I mean, Abe Reynolds kills it there. That joke works. Yes, that, that whole thing works in 1947. Going to Reno. <laughs> yes. And I've got alimony and I'm taking care of why? the moths. Yeah, all, all of right. it works. Abe Reynolds she kills has it here. custody of the moths. Playing Finkelhoff the tailor. Uh, it, it, I think that works in 1947. It made me laugh hysterically out loud. Me and my cat laughing hysterically out loud. Well, she wasn't laughing hysterically out loud, but I was watching the scene. I watched it a couple times. It made me laugh every time. Uh, just laughing. Watching it now, I was laughing there was a lot of sections of the movie that had that that absurd humor portion you know where they take it further and they and it's it's extra silly when they're in the restaurant and the table's wobbling i was dying when the waiter just cannot get it right cannot get the table to be still and every time he'll get it still and then jim puts his elbow on it and it bends and he just the way that he just grabs the table and grabs another one so funny because like we've all been there or when mike is like in going to bed and he's like trying to get the bed settled and then it just like collapses in a million pieces and it's just like ridiculous there are so many like just hijinksy moments like that that 
they worked for me. I was not turned off at all. I thought they were really funny bits. I, so funny. And that the the scene with the waiter or the maitre d' and the table, because they're having a very serious conversation. I mean, right, my, right. I mean uh, Trudy and, and Jim are about to break they're up practically here. breaking uh, up. They're yes. practically breaking up. And he is he this is the this is like a forerunner to Mr. Bean. This was like a classic Mr. Bean kind of like physical comedy. The way he goes under the table in one side and then pops out the other side and just and we've all been there like you said it's so relatable and it never fixes and then finally he he throws the table away and then drags the other one it, it all worked for me it, it was funny to me because this seemed like very modern comedy i guess it hit me as like something very modern i, I it surprised me that it was in this movie and in this scene um it's it, something that could happen in friends like a hundred percent of a hundred percent this seemed like very sophisticated modern comedy and it was happening here in this 1947 movie Maybe, i'm gonna hesitate on your sophisticated but i'm gonna say it's well, it is modern comedy it is that it is the evolution of slapstick right but the going under the table then popping out on the other side yeah. and 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 the they stay with the bit so long which is what makes yes. it even funnier because maybe he comes and he does wobbles the table one time normal i think most movies are going to make the choice where that's where the bit ends they commit to it hard and that's like a four minute scene uh, of, of playing with the table while they're trying to have this conversation it's so odd that it's in here but it was also very funny i gotta tell you i laughed out loud when uh, it's revealed in the office that Mike is Michael J. O'Connor, and they're cut. They're close on Mike's face about doing the transfer, and then they cut back to the boys, and there's only two standing there. And then the camera pans around, and he's like, like a spread eagled on the yes, floor, laying on the floor. I left. I, I went. I, I mean, not to recreate it, but I literally did this out loud. <laughs> like it made me laugh, like like significantly, like out loud, like despite myself, I was startled by how funny I found it. This movie was very funny. It had a lot of funny lines, uh, but here are a couple of mine. Uh, places as empty as a sewing basket in a nudist camp. Mm-hmm. Man, I feel like I have to use that. I feel like that's a line <laughs> I have to use. Uh, he calls me sugar because I was hard to get. Yep, I love that one. I totally zoomed in on that one. I, that feels like a line that you would be using today. I mean, <laughs> I, don't, funny. I don't know what sugar, I mean, sugar, that's a very specific reference to a different time, but. Well, but, it's rationing. I don't know. I get it. Right. I'm saying in 24, I don't know what the. Here's what they, the deal. Uh, if I'm talking to somebody and the guy doesn't get it, then um, <laughs> he's not a guy I want to continue talking to. Calling yourself a monkey's orphan. I'll be a monkey's orphan. I don't one. even that one is so funny. I don't I don't get it. But that that was one in the clip that you played me. And uh, I was uh, like, monkey's orphan. Here. I want to play. I want to say that more often. Well, because the phrase the phrase we all grew up with anyway is I'll be a monkey's uncle. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's missaid. Maybe it's really supposed to be monkey's orphan. I mean, it takes it to a whole other level because <laughs> it because, really does. Because Aloysius doesn't even blink. He just he's like, well, I'm sure I'm sure your uh, your parentage, your your descendant line is more dignified than that. Your family tree or something, you know, that's like the implications. I'm sure you come from better stock than a monkey's orphan kind of thing. Just very funny. It's just <laughs> rolling with it. This is just a good pickup line. If, if fellas out there, if you're trying to woo your girl, it may not be mink, but you sure make it look like it. I love that. That's a very saucy line. That's a very saucy line. That is smooth AF, my <laughs> friends. Very, very funny. I love all that. Oh, I love all of it. The the writing in these in these movies, the the nineteen forties movies, like they make me very happy. Like all of it is to me smart and interesting, and I love the bits. Like I'm all for it. I this is my jam of a movie. I had another bit we see a couple times, but explicitly in the bank scene or the the 
meet Michael J. O'Connor scene at the end. How much did you enjoy all the men taking off their hats when they were when they went indoors? Oh well, yes, yeah. I, you know, I'm a I'm a sucker for manners, and you're, I'm a sucker. I for... almost wrote in my note. I actually wrote, <laughs> "You're a sucker for manners." I almost literally wrote that. I was you like, did I don't not. I swear to God. I swear to God. You I were going to write, "You're a sucker for manners." I said, that? "You're a sucker for manners," because I have it. If you look at our notes, I have a question: How much did you enjoy the men taking their hats off? And then I wrote, "Manners matter. Manners matter." Replaced, "You're because you're a sucker for manners." <laughs> I am a sucker for manners, specifically from men. Oh, obviously, like, yes. I well, not obviously. Okay, obviously I mean, you to don't me. know. I'm, I'm, I know you. So okay, yes, but I'm not. I'm not like an Emily Post. Like I'm yes. not somebody who has like this etiquette, you know, level that like you're supposed to like. Oh, did you RSVP by the specific? Like I'm not like that. Just chivalry and like having those types of manners towards women. It's so few and far between anymore that when someone does it and they do it sincerely yeah it makes me melt on the floor (laughs) i pull a full gym on the floor i want to talk about jim jim and trudy a little bit because this is a very fast love story uh and i I want to phrase i want to play the bolivia clip from the movie uh where jim basically is telling mike who has arranged this job for single men in bolivia you know, and he, he tells him, in summary, he tells him, Bolivia holds nothing for me. You know, the USA is where I want to be. But I want to I want to play that clip and then frame it insofar as how do you feel the Trudy and Jim love story plays out for you? Well, that's great, Jim. That's a lot of money. Uh, when are you leaving? Are you kidding? Why would I want to go to Bolivia? Well, wonderful country, fine climate. Beautiful girls down there. Not bad up here, either. But, Jim, Bolivia is the tin capital of the world. Look, Mike, I like the good old USA, and that ain't tin. If I can't make a living here, then I'll give up. Besides, I couldn't let guys like Hank and Whitey down. They and a hundred others have put their time, faith, and dough into an idea. I'd be a heel to walk out. I mean, talk about movie themes of one. Mike is coming from it at he's the, Bolivia is the tin capital of the world. I mean, hello, <laughs> tin capital of the world, Caroline. <laughs> if that doesn't sell you, what will? And Jim is responding with a USA. USA, which is a very... Hey, this is the right time, man. This is the exact right time. We mm-hmm. are, you know, we are the champions. You know, so very USA. There's a couple of pro-USA... Reminder, listeners, it's 1947, just remembering right. when this is in and the a movie, And a movie optioned in 1945, so, mm-hmm. you know, shot in 46, very post-war high euphoria. Um, but two... You know, the girls are pretty good here while he's looking at Trudy, right? Because Trudy is secretly in the middle of this conversation listening. You know, she's literally in between her father and Jim when this conversation is happening. And and he also says, but I'm also I've got my guys here. I'm not walking out on Whitey and Hank and all they've done and all the guys at the barracks. They've, you know, one hundred thousand dollars lined up between all of these men throwing in everything they can in this post-war economy again what's your priority is your is your priority your money or is your priority your friends and your family and your loved ones this is the movie theme stomping out here but i i wanted to frame it insofar as how did you find the jim and trudy love story aspect of it because that's also wrapped up in what he's saying here without being explicit about it 
Well, so I'm going to back up like two sentences on you and I'm going to say, I'm going to clarify that. I feel like it's not just doing it for the money. It's doing it for individual wealth versus for the larger group. So he obviously would have to share more, but he could go and do this by himself and become individually wealthy and do better for himself. So I feel like that was like a big also a huge theme in this, regardless of America or whatever. It was all, do you just do it for yourself or do you do it for the greater good, the bigger group? So that was huge. Um, Okay. So Trudy and Jim. All right. Their love story. I don't know. I mean, very convenient <laughs> to, to fall in love with the one guy who's available here and the one girl who's available here. Um, You know, that's, that's all very convenient. I, you know, it works for the love story because that's just how these stories go. I mean, they're not going to go bring in characters from the outside. You know, obviously this is their story. This is their little snapshot um, that we're getting of their lives of when they found each other. I thought Jim himself was a pretty interesting character. I mean, they start off so silly with him, like basically in his underwear, handcuffed to the bed, not willing to move out. I mean, that was a very, when you think about it, that's a pretty scandalous kind of scene, you know, Um, being thrown out in your underwear and everything. So literally evicted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that was like, that really got my attention and one, and and I wanted to understand more about like what, what is going on here. And so to realize that all these GIs were, were out on the streets, that they were living in their cars with their kids and they were trying to move in together and try to pull their money and do all these things that I thought that this was a really creative idea that they came up with and it felt grounded in reality. Now, you and I are not from this time, so I have no idea if the concept of buying abandoned barracks and turning them into like low income housing, if this was a reasonable idea of the time or if this was completely so silly and ridiculous. I don't really know. Do you have a sense? I, I don't know. I mean, the idea I thought it was actually a genius. I, I don't know why. I think Mike, it's very clever. I don't know why Mike was so down on it. It seemed I mean, this seems kind of like the birth of housing complexes. I mean, if you've ever been to the Bronx, you know, co-op city is built is founded on this it's a very small area in the grand scheme of things but it is packed you know using skyscraper technology it packed you know hundreds of apartments thousands and thousands of people into this very small area all in that post-war kind of boom yeah so it made a lot of sense to me you know they're not they're going to close the barracks base closings is always a thing that comes up every every you know generation you know as the military reshuffles and and rededicates kind of thing so it made a lot of sense to me michael j o'connor when when he realizes you know he wants to build his global you know network air cargo network out in the same base god i could appreciate that so much right now i mean this is a completely different time but the idea of having really seamless from uh cargo ships right through to getting processed to airplanes and getting shipped all over the place that's actually like would be a brilliant idea right this second. It felt like, yes, that entire thing being built right there in the harbor would be fantastic. Well, I think, I mean, I think this exists now. I mean, if, if you if you go to like well, nowhere. It, you unless look- you're trying to buy Christmas gifts and good luck because there's well, like ships sitting in the harbor because we can't get our stuff going because supply chains. Well, so I'm just saying pandemic, there's but a, like, but, but if no, to- I'm, I know, but it's all related in terms of like, boy, would this be a great time for someone to have a slick idea to make this operate more smoothly. That's all I'm trying to say. 
right. Not that this exact, of course, this but idea is. I liked it though, played out because I don't think it actually existed in 1947. But it was it was prescient though because you know look at like Newark in New Jersey, the the port of Newark, which is still an operating port, is literally next door to Newark Airport. Baltimore, it's the same thing. The airport, the BWI Airport, is not too far away from the port of Baltimore and Seattle, where so much of Asia uh, uh, imports from Asia come into SeaTac not too far away from where the airport is, you know, the SeaTac airport. So he was, Jay O'Connor was, you know, Michael J. O'Connor was being prescient here in this need. But I think Jim and his friends also, though, this idea of of a housing crisis and the need for a housing boom. Again, remember the 50s, the, the baby boomer generation, that, that housing becomes a big need and necessity in America for the next 20 years. Well, you know? this is when suburbia is born, you know, this idea of, of track housing and my my, my grandparents ordered their house from Sears, literally ordered it from Sears, and it came on a truck, and they put it up in an afternoon. <laughs> they put up the walls, and everything was there. They had to have the foundation poured. But other than that, it came, like, and they just literally put it up. The first house I owned, the entire street, were all Sears Roebuck houses. They were built in. They were all built in the fifties over the course of about five years in the fifties, and they were all catalog houses. Someone bought the, you know, some developer bought uh, twenty houses and put them up on the street, just all facing each other. And people over the years made modifications, but their their base route it was the identical house over and over again, the catalog house. So yeah, suburbia. Camp, where where they're describing Camp Kilson, you know, out just outside of New York, and New York here is Manhattan. Is is a huge commuting area. The 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 surrounding counties right outside of Manhattan, Rockland County, Westchester County, you know, where they're talking about where Camp Kilson would be becomes suburbia. It's where everyone, you know, you live there, you jump on the train, you go into Manhattan, you know, you finish your day, you get on the train, you go home. It, 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 this movie is talking is is talking about things that would really become the reality for the next half century uh so it's kind of fascinating just as a historical right before things actually happened i found this movie kind of fascinating but um yeah i just like this idea of put your family and your friends first and we can all rise together prioritize your family and your loved ones don't worry about your bank account as your main concern don't don't be in a love affair uh, you know with your money over you know or at the expense and cost of your family your wife your husband your child your you know whatever it is it had um, a very charlie brown christmas kind of feel and also like at the end of it's a wonderful life a very like let's pull all our resources mm-hmm. and we can we can save everyone if we do that and that that's a wonderful message uh, one thing I, because I, I sounded like I was negative maybe on the love story. I agree with you. I think it fits the story well. One thing I realized that I, I, I reflected on after I watched it was I think this movie actually takes place over a longer span of time than maybe is obvious. It blooms to 11 people. I was thinking about it. Just the idea of Hank and his wife. They go down to Washington. They have a meeting at Washington. They come all the way back from Washington. The fact that Mary has to travel up from Palm Beach up to uh, Manhattan. This has to take place over a longer span of time, probably more like three or four weeks uh, than, well, we know it does because he moves in November 3rd or something like that. 
right? Because he says at the end of the movie, I'll be back here next November 3rd, McKeever does. Yeah, he's like, he. I mean, his typical time frame, I thought he said, was like November 3rd to like March 15th. He leaves on the 13th because they come back on the 15th. Right, and this movie picks up with him moving in for the season. So, and they leave right after New Year's or just about after New Year's. So this movie actually takes place over a two months time. I guess the, the love story actually doesn't seem this rush if you're thinking that they are together in close quarters like this for two months that actually makes a lot more sense so uh, the for, gun scene i think was one of the the most like what the what just happened kind of situations what did you think of that i i mean it was it was funny and i think she looks i mean just the the juxtaposition she's in this this you know crazy night uh you know evening cocktail dress right i mean remember that's the dress that she comes in she frames herself in the doorway and she's like does anyone have a light you know, and then now she's holding like a shotgun and then she shoots up. I mean, I don't think that works terribly well in 2021. Uh, the idea of a gun being shot off in a house, again, just changing sensibilities. I laughed at it. I thought it was funny. I thought it was weird. I mean, it was it was kind of like the table bit. It was it, it just was, how, was so weird that this is in this movie. It just seems like, I don't know, they had a comedy writer. Yeah, they had bits that they like kind of worked in every bits. time. And so this was definitely a bit that I was like, look at you guys. She's a knockout, though. I mean, I don't really know. I didn't really know Gail Storm. <laughs> she looked really beautiful in that in the evening gowns. She like she beautiful. she transformed. I mean, she did exactly what a girl would want to do to 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 change from you know them sort of always like chiding her and being like young lady you don't need to be touching this bubble to like when she does stand in the doorway and she does look so beautiful in the dress she morphs into a grown woman in front of their eyes in a way that was like well played well played sister <laughs> when he, when Jim gets his laser eyes first on her and he kind of his mouth falls open and he does a double take. It's a gorgeous dress. I, I well, I got it. I mean, she she's a, a, a beautiful woman. I actually thought it was really interesting ca casting too because if you look at Charles Ruggles and Anne Harding who are playing her parents, both attractive in their, you know, definitely in their younger days would have been probably a real knockout couple producing a very attractive daughter like this. Also maybe like I was like that's really good casting. I I see where Anne Harding as Mary produces a daughter that looks like Trudy. You know what I mean? I, 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 I do. Just, yeah. They look like a family. I agree they with you. They look like a family. Not that there were they any did a good job. Um, <laughs> no, but when the three stand together, there's, I mean, I think it's, it's well done. I, one weird, uh, just a, and I, let's file it under the, the shotgun bit or the Taylor joke or the table joke. There's a throwaway reference to Frank Sinatra in this movie. This is 1947. Yeah. I didn't realize Frank Sinatra was a thing in 1947. I associate him with I associate him really with the 60s as his oh. heyday, but definitely as as a career that starts maybe in the 50s. Did that make you stop? Like they're they're name dropping Frank Sinatra in 1946, 47. By that point, he would have been well into his late twenties. I want to say 30s, so. Actually, in nineteen forty, he's already in his thirties in nineteen forty-six. Yeah. Oh well, in that case, yeah. No, I would have thought he would be like a household name by that point. But but I had to do that math just then to figure that out. I had no. I guess I had no concept of of how early his career started. I didn't realize he was born. I mean, I think he's born in either nineteen twelve or nineteen fifteen, something like that. Um, but his debut album actually had come out in nineteen forty-six. Oh, okay. So, so he's he's he is a he's a household name because he's like a new artist, though. It's like Frank Sinatra, the new artist. But just hearing it, it I, again, it's it's one of those things where there's so much of this movie that 
time travels to now and still is either relevant or still is funny or still works. I mean, you can yeah. still make Frank Sinatra references in 2021. You could still talk about veterans' lack of housing. You could still talk yeah. about shipping issues. You could still talk about the the very rich versus the very poor monetarily, though I feel on Aloysius, one of my favorite lines is when he was saying, a man without friends is the one who truly lives in poverty. I was like, ooh, Aloysius, you just like, are, you're getting to, to all the good little nuggets here. He had a lot of little moments like that. Well, Mike and Mary standing outside of their house, right, as the as the celebrity house tour oh, goes gosh. by at the end of the movie, just as it starts the movie, he's hearing the guy talk about how Michael J. O'Connor is the second richest man in the world. And, you know, Michael turns to Mary and says, there are richer people than me in the world, as they're watching McKeever kind of skip off down the road with Sam. I have to talk about the next line because my heart squoze so tight in my chest. Okay, so then when he says, we're going to nail the fence shut. Mm. When he said that, like, my blood ran cold. Yeah. And I thought, oh my God, please don't tell me that this man hasn't twist. learned his lesson. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's learned nothing at the end of this well, Christmas well, that he got well that he got his wife back and he, and he has his daughter and Jim now and that that was it and they were going to they were going to nail it shut and then when he said because next year he's going to come through the front door tears tears oh. sprang out of my eyes i was like oh my god because he didn't embarrass aloysius at any point like he was totally okay with how this ended like like they went all the way through to the end for him not knowing who they all were and i thought surely that was gonna get spilled right well him. he makes a specific right he makes a specific uh requirement of taking of the doing the land transfer to the guys uh, of the camp kilson property is that they don't tell mm-hmm. aloysius that he is michael j o'connor like it becomes very important to him that mckeever judge him based on being mike and not being michael I think also to also save him from feeling like a foolish. Yeah. yeah, because I, because there were so many times when he was, you know, telling Mike what to do and telling Mike how to do it. Now, don't chip the dishes and don't do this. And he never made him feel small. And he and it was important to him all the way through the end to never embarrass him and like really reveal. And I have to say the other part that actually made me choke up a little bit was when he was standing with the vets and and, you know, the the different businessmen come up and they don't oh, know yeah. who who Michael J. O'Connor is. And so they're like, well, that must be him. And the vets like pick up the vegetables and they're going to throw it at him. And he's just so caught up in it. Like he really is on the side of the vets in that moment. And he picks up, you know, the, the tomatoes and potatoes and all that stuff and starts throwing vegetables at the businessmen, you know, and of course he's the head of all of them. But it's like, there's something about that, that he really started to identify, right. you know, on like a really human level with with the the masses if you will versus the one percent right well you I remember it was you gotta, a touching thing it is a touching thing and you have to think this guy probably fought fought in world war one honestly i mean you backtrack it or or yeah. just missed world war one you know by a couple of years the plight of the gi again kind of like his family you almost get the impression that he he he, he says this line and it's a very cold line because this movie, you know, subverts expectations when they announce 
that uh, they lost the deal. And then he walks out of the room. I got the feeling like he was going to go call Pharaoh and tell him to tran- to to back out of the bidding. Right when 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 he learns that he's the one bidding against the boys for the land, mm-hmm. I thought he was going to go make one of his secret phone calls. And Mary follows him, and he's like. No, it's business. It's not sentiment. How many times have I told you not to mix sentiment up with business? That was like a little cold water on me because I was like, oh, he hasn't learned his lesson yet. That and the whole Bolivia thing and it has to be a single man. That whole portion too where like you're still not done pulling strings. You're still going to be doing stuff because they were they were far enough in the story. They were. That I was surprised that he was still going to try to mess with their relationship and everything. I was like, really? You're going to do that to Trudy after? After all of this, you know, daughter, father, you know, bonding you're doing here, you're you're going to do that to her. And I was surprised. I mean, but that kind of kept like a level of realism, though, I thought, because it didn't make it such a sappy, sweet story where everything continuously just went to just this happy place. Like it was like, no, there's like a push pull throughout. Well, I pulled up the remote and I looked at the time code. I was like, how much time is left this Me morning? too. Me has, too. He has words let's say, and when Mary, mm-hmm. when Mary, I mean, she does such a good job. I, I, for me personally, my, my favorite performance in this movie is Charles Ruggles is Mike, is Mike, Michael J. O'Connor. I, yeah. For me, he, he's the best performance in this movie because I found I it, I found it believable at every single stage of it. But when Mary says to him in that scene, just with visible disgust in her voice, she's like, you've not changed. They just had this wonderful, sweet time where she's like, oh, you've changed. And he's like, oh, I've, I have changed and I'm going to change even. He says, I'm going to change even more. I thought that for sure. And then he says earlier on when, you know, some people think I'm Santa Claus. He's just given these false like directions, like he's going to go do the right thing and buy the camp for the GIs or help them out. He keeps giving these like little like like nuggets he's dropping like he has learned his lesson but then it turns around and he hasn't when she says you've not changed at all like what a fool i am like you you know you're exactly the same person i was like oh my god what a dagger in the heart you've not you've, you haven't changed at all so mm. at the end of the movie when he says we're gonna nail the sport i had the same exact I, hesitation I, as you I, yeah I, like my blood ran cold i was like you are kidding me i cannot believe he's going to do that you know and 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 of course you know the other the other like sort of heartwarming moment is to find out that really Aloysius goes down to their Virginia home in the off season. <laughs> I was like giggling to myself, like great writing how? though because they, very good. Well, they hint at that earlier in the movie, the bubbling springs. Right? He, he tells Jim in the beginning of the movie he knows exactly where uh, Michael J. O'Connor is in the off season, and he describes it a little wistfully. And I thought to myself, this guy switches houses when they come up, he goes down. I thought to myself, and so for to learn that he actually does that. The movie i was like they they planted that little seed early on earlier and showed you the map with the writing in case you didn't catch the line of what it was called i thought that was funny though i mean honestly if i'm here i mean maybe i'm thinking well i guess he doesn't know that uh, mary is not in palm beach i'm like man if i'm going to get some sunshine i think i'm going down to palm (laughs) beach before i go down to virginia (laughs) that's funny okay mike are we at the point where we're going to say whether or not this is a christmas movie i think so you go first because i think i had to do the last defense I say it is a Christmas movie. Obviously, we have the big culmination of the of the story being told 
Christmas Eve and, and the Santa Claus moments and the, all the sort of epiphanies there of, of being together and the importance of it. And, and, and even there's moments where, um, Mike says like, people think I'm Santa Claus at this time. I'm really going to be Santa Claus, like all that kind of stuff, real huge Christmas Carol switcheroo here on him and, and his thinking. And I thought it, I thought it was a great story of just if you only looked at Jim and his guys pulling together to try to help one another, I mean, that's very Charlie Brown, very, very beautiful. It's a wonderful life, the whole community all coming together, lots of that good stuff. So I was really happy with the whole thing. I, I really enjoyed this movie. I put out on my Facebook, I was like, I'm not even plugging my podcast. I'm just telling you, you guys should go check out this this movie because I think it's great. I agree. I think it's a great Christmas movie. I think it has great Christmas movie messages that we've been talking about for 47 weeks. This idea, I mean, just listen, you know, look at some of the lyrics from the song that uh, Trudy is singing, the um, uh, the What Christmas Means to Me song that she sings. You know, some of the lyrics are, you know, we want to be with all of our loved ones by our side. We want peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Uh, you know, we want an open house for friends and neighbors. These are all themes that they're showing us in the movie as well as singing about in that song. But these are themes of the movie standing by your friends like Jim and, and Hank and Whitey and their GI friends, you know, doing what's right for them and trying to be good neighbors and good friends and loyal over choosing that over maybe being able to make money as a single person down in Bolivia in the tin capital of the world, choosing your friends and your loved ones and staying up here. The idea of the house is only what the occupants make of it. The, the, the infidelity with your money that Mary says mm. cost her relation, cost Michael his relationship with her. And because, you know, no pictures in the house, right? Family isn't the priority yeah. for him and for this family. Money is. And and learning that that's actually not the right way to live. Putting your family first and your friends first and, and your loved ones first over your money is the better way to live and get along. All of that that's learned by him. It's such a Christmas theme. It's 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 a wonderful life in parts, you know, getting to see what your life would be like if you weren't there, right? That's how yeah, Mike gets to live absolutely. In, in anonymity. But it's also this this Clarence thing with with the role that McKeever plays. And again, in my head, he's still an angel brought here for this purpose, him and Sammy the dog, who is adorable. I know. <laughs> when when Sammy's in the bubble bath in the sink, my heart was like, oh. I know. Do you know my whole my whole living room went oh because you see Aloysius in the tub with all his bubbles and I was thinking I kept thinking to myself this is so funny that this man is in this bubble bath and then the then the little uh, camera goes over to the dog in the same bubble bath in the sink and I was like oh Sammy and what was the other thing too when he says he's got to go Mike has to go take the dog for a walk but oh the he's like I'm he a dog for it. a valet he's like I'm the valet for the dog you know at seven o'clock I have to take her for a, right. But what he doesn't say he has to take her for a walk. He says he has to take him for like a, a promenade. A promenade, yeah, which is just cracking the whole me up. bit with I Sammy. Love and it. You brought up the bit with the bed, with the bed collapsing yes. on him. But the lead up to the bed, though, where Sammy's on the chair, Mike turns around, <laughs> Sammy jumps off the bed. He's like, "No, no, you go over there." Sammy gets down, Mike turns around. This, all of it, the bits, the bits are hysterical I in this know, movie. I know. This I movie it. is this movie. I think even with your little kids, I think if you can get them to sit still, they're gonna find parts of this 
this movie. It doesn't feel like an old movie. Let me say it that way. I agree. I really agree with you on it that point. It feels very I, timeless. The, the vocabulary can, can, you know, like we said, promenade instead of sure. walk and stuff like that. I mean, there's a little bit of that. But in all honesty, I think this is a timeless story. It I, really I is. applaud them for that. It, with the humor in it, I think, is really timeless. I think the jokes work no matter what decade you're in. I think there is so I think we've come so full circle on so many social issues that the plight of the GIs and frightening. The, the homelessness of these guys, the, the, the casual way in which the wives show up and they're like, yeah, we're living in our car, you know, and Mike and Jim is having to live on the park bench. The, just just it's just what it is the kind of callous nature and the the divide between the haves and the have-nots i think these are all things that even young people are going to resonate with today maybe the fact that it's in black and white will give them pause but what a great way to say like not. listen these are these are issues that we always have to be aware of and and not chasing money to the expense of our fellow man neighbors and loved ones is always an important lesson to know whether it's 1947 or whether it's 2021 i think this is a t- is telling a time tale at a, with a christmas bent to it i think this movie works maybe you could do this at other times of the years but you would lose the conceit of why he is squatting in this house in the winter months it wouldn't really make sense but i think there are christmas themes at here or themes that we associate with good christmas movies that are in abundance and what this movie is really about i think it's a great christmas movie and really a timeless one too you ready for some fast facts please Trudy's job at the music store paid her $30 per week. Adjusted for inflation in 2020, that's $372 per week. Not much that she gets to work in a music store. I would kill to work cool in a music job. store. Pretty cool job. Oh, my God. I I wanted nothing more to live in, to work in Tower Records when I was a kid. I had to work in Kmart. But, man, I just wanted to work in Tower Records out on Long Island. So. That's funny. Uh, we were talking about Sammy. I don't know. It wasn't in this in the facts that I have here, but I read it I read it in some interview. Roy DeFore, who's uh, Don DeFore's son, he gave an interview that – the dog handler for this movie gave Sammy the dog to Ron's sister, or Ron or Roy's sister, Penny, at the conclusion of filming the movie because they had the kids had come to set so often they had fallen in love with the dog and they had like a bond with the dog. So at the end of the filming, yeah, Sam, Sammy became a defour uh, at the end of this movie. <laughs> so I love that. I love that. Herbert Clyde Lewis and Frederick Stefani were nominated for the Academy Award for Best Story, losing to Valentine Davies for another Christmas-themed story, Miracle on 34th Street. What a wild time. I mean, this is a great movie, but again, without a huge cast. But the idea that you're competing with It's a Wonderful Life that comes out just... I mean, this is April, right? So you have It's a Wonderful Life is probably still playing in some theaters in, you know, by April. Um, I could maybe not actually remember It's a Wonderful Life actually wasn't that big of a hit. It was actually kind of a flop uh, when it came out. It wasn't until years later. But you have It's a Wonderful Life coming out in 46 Christmas time. Then you have Miracle on 34th Street, which was a hit at the time it released in 1947. I think it was the second, first or second highest grossing movie of the year. I mean, this movie gets lost in the shuffle, which is unfortunate because it really remains an invisible movie. I'm so glad that we did it for this for this podcast and i hope it gets it some visibility you guys can watch it on hbo max right now it's streaming for free well streaming for free if you subscribe to hbo max go watch it, it it's it's this unsung little like engine that could of a christmas movie 
I think also because it doesn't say the word Christmas anywhere in the title or even in the the write-up for it, that I think that some people will just skip past it not even realizing. Because if you typed in something like Christmas movie, you may not catch this one. Yeah, no, I mean, really, uh, Turner Classic Movies actually has did a lot to resurrect this in the last 10 years because they've added it to their rotation of, of seasonal movies that they'll play starting in December. Um, and that's probably where I actually found this movie from when I was compiling the list so long ago. Uh, actually, just coming up on just about a year ago uh, when we we're recording this, uh, I, I was starting to put together the list for this podcast. I think I probably found it there. Yeah, it definitely doesn't appear on many Christmas movie lists, but it should. I think it's great. Um, one one last fast fact for you. This was the first production of Allied Artist Picture, which was referred to as a picture division of Monogram Pictures. Up until this point, Monogram Pictures only made like B and C kind of movies. The average movie at this time cost $800,000 to make. The average Monogram movie at this time cost $98,000 to make. So they were making really cheap movies. With with It Happened on Fifth Avenue, they launched this new sub, this sub line called Allied Artist Pictures, this was supposed to be like higher quality movies, higher production value movies. This movie goes over budget, goes three, four hundred thousand dollars over budget, costs one point two million dollars, makes some money, but Monogram Pictures never really takes off though. This is the only movie it really makes of note. It eventually goes away and Ally Pictures is the is what's left. The the movies that it continues to make is under this sub subheading line. The only other movie really of super note that it makes is Cabaret 72, the Joel Gray Liza Minnelli adaptation of the of the musical Cabaret. So there's, you know, uh, 30 years in between the really two kind of big note, you know, noteworthy films for this studio. But yeah, this was supposed to be the start of something big uh, for Monogram Pictures, and it never really came to be. Wow. Maybe, maybe we blame it on Miracle on 34th Street. Maybe if that doesn't come, <laughs> if that doesn't come out, maybe this movie gets uh, some more visibility. I don't know. Wow. All right, Mike, are you ready for some Jingle Bell ratings? But first, could you please play me a clip for next week? I sure can. Here we go. Actually, yes. This is a sample cheese board for a holiday mixer tonight. I know it's a little heavy on the Gouda. That was the MVP last year. Uh, do have a feisty cheddar on the bench. I think that pairs better with the mulled non-alcoholic wine myself. But what do I? Wait, wait. Sorry. Excuse me. You're having a Christmas party tonight? Oh, it's not a Christmas party. It's a non-denominational holiday mixer. It's more inclusive. Well, whatever the fuck it is, it's not happening. Yeah, it's definitely. Well, it's not happening because it happens at 5.30 in the afternoon. It's just a small thing that's really important to all of us. But trust me, it's, it's going to suck. <laughs> no, it's not going to suck because it's canceled. What? All branch Christmas parties are canceled. It's a waste of money. Come on. What are you guys not getting? A little, a little bit different vibe than yeah, it that sounded, on Fifth Avenue. <laughs> that sounded like Jennifer Aniston being telling everybody they can't have a Christmas party. But I don't know this party. I mean, it sounds office but other than that, I, I don't know. It is 2016's Office Christmas Party starring Jennifer Aniston, Jason Bateman. And people may confuse that with Horrible Bosses. Now, because they were in heart, the series of Horrible Bosses movies together, this is not related to that franchise in any way, shape, or form. It's just them kind of being reunited on this movie. So you have Jennifer Aniston, Jason Bateman, Olivia Munn, 
Courtney B. Vance, Rob Corddry, Kate McKinnon. So really, really good cast. One guy who's canceled, so I'm not saying his name now because he's a bit of a monster and we don't want to talk about him. But otherwise, um, yeah, uh, you know, uh, hopefully a funny, funny movie, probably not appropriate for the kiddies. <laughs> well, looking forward to that one for sure. All right. Let's hit up some jingle bells. Oh, my gosh. Open the vault. <laughs> Got the spreadsheet out. You're ready to go. You're yes. up first. Do, 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 do. Uh, I th- I'm giving this one an eight. I I was pleasantly surprised by this movie. I'm very, very super happy that we've done it. I think this movie will be a movie that I watch again. Why am I not ranking it higher? I feel like it could have hit some more Christmas themes a little bit harder. Uh, okay. I think if they had been explicit on that angel idea, and I know that probably sounds silly to people, I think if they had been explicit on that, this probably is going over a nine for me. Um, the fact that I have to do some headcanon work to get some of the Christmas vibes is costing it some points. Um, but again, I think it deals with so many themes that are, we find important in Christmas movies. The fact that this takes place in New York is always going to win points for me. There's a great reference <laughs> right at the start about the 400, which if you guys don't know, yeah, Millionaire's, like Row, Millionaire's Row in Fifth Avenue and the 400 and what that all is. Definitely go look it up. It's a fascinating part of the Gilded Age of New York's uh, history, the late 19th century, uh, well before this movie even takes place this idea of of the 400 fantastic a little part of new york's history all of that together uh, i love this movie i, I like this movie a lot giving it eight jingle bells can you tell me what do i have at about an 8.5 i sure can give me a second hmm. i'm not allowed to look directly into the spreadsheet mike has to shield my eyes so he has to tell me you have nightmare before christmas at an 8.5 you have no 8.25s. You have It's a Wonderful Life at an 8. Uh, you have White Christmas at an 8. That's wild to me. That is wild. That should have been bumped lower. You have lower. Christmas with the Cranks at an 8. That should have been bumped lower. <laughs> you have Jack Frost at an 8. I think oh eight, my I think 8 goodness. is kind of your, is your average Christmas I think because Christmas we started movie. off so strong in the 9s and the and like we were doing Charlie Brown and we were doing all these things that were like so so high up that I feel like when I was given it an 8 that felt like a kick in the behind to it because I was being like harsh to it. Uh you gave a Smoky Mountain Christmas an 8. Shut up. <laughs> Arthur, Arthur Christmas and eight. Okay, I, you guys, there's going to be a massive reshuffle of my Meet of my St. numbers Louis at the end. No, I have a problem. Eight <laughs> became my five. I think. Um, I, well, I think eight became like yeah, like your six. Like or I seven. didn't want to like, be mean to it, but like at the same it's like time, your C. I think eight became like your C. Eight C became plus. my C. I think your you're C, right. C plus or B minus became like as your eight. So I have not in this entire forty-seven weeks. I have not gone to Facebook and implored anyone to go watch a movie i've shared our podcast but i haven't actually said hey i watched this movie today and you guys should check it out so the fact that i did that has to compel me to give it i'm gonna give it an 8.5 can i stop you one second just to give you some context you gave a very harold and kumar christmas an 875 8.75 okay you also gave love actually an 8.75 so just just for context, that's where you are in the eight. I like this one better. Um, okay, then this I'm going to give like it a nine. This feels like a nine to me okay. for you. Give, give me, all right, I'll give it a nine. I'm going to give it a nine. Um, it really did strike me. And I know I said this in the last one. And, you know, when I said it, it took me aback. This is another one that I was like, this is 
these messages are hitting my heart. And I, I don't know if it's because we're getting closer to Christmas. And so like just this week, the twinkle lights are up on all the Christmas trees on in the middle of town center. You know, all of the, the nutcrackers are were put up by, by the signs and, and all this stuff. So I feel like I'm really in the the mindset to want to be seeing all these things that I'm really, I'm like straining my ears for the Christmas message that maybe I wasn't in say July or something. Um, And so this one, it just, it really touched my heart. And I think I'm putting it with all of the Christmas carols. I'm putting it as if Scrooge is considered uh, like a derivation of a Christmas carol. I think that this one has just as many beats in it that yes, I know it doesn't have distinctly three ghosts, but there's enough of your sort of out of body, out of your real life experiences that happen between Mike and Mary and Trudy for that matter, that I think I'm willing to give it enough of a Christmas Carol nod. So that's, that's where I'm at. Nine is right in the right wheelhouse. I think from what listening to you talk about this movie, he's (laughs) at your nines. You have elf. Elf, Miracle on 34th Street, A Charlie Brown Christmas, Frosty the Snowman. Those are your nines. So this feels right in that right wheelhouse for you for that from what I'm hearing from you. Okay. Well, I feel comfortable with that. And, and I just, you know, I don't know, Mike, I think I've also gotten a year older, you know, I'm 47 weeks older than I was when we started this. And I think I'm having a softer heart. Yeah. I think, I think all of that is going into it. It, It's, we're definitely recording this in a time when Christmas is starting to flow through our veins in a way that it's not, you know, I wanted to do this podcast and I think you signed on to this podcast because we both feel that there are parts of the, there are parts of the year where you just need that infusion of Christmas. You just need a little bit of the lifeline. Now we're getting into the part of the year where we're going to be inundated in excess with Christmas. You know, in July, in June, July, you're scraping the barrel. You're as far away from Christmas as you can be. And so your spirit, your, your, you know, you look at your watch like uh, Santa Kurt Russell does in the Christmas Chronicles. And, you know, your Christmas spirit is running low in June, July. Now it's starting to kind of like bubble over. You know, your heart is just in a, it is open and looking for Christmas in a way that maybe it's not any other time because it's, it's becoming abundant, you know. Yes. My, I, I drink Dunkin' Donuts coffee at least two or three times every single day. And it's for the last couple of weeks now, it's been Christmas cups or, or holiday seasonal cups. That kind of stuff. Like I'm getting like these subliminal messages of Christmas everywhere now. <laughs> I don't even know if it's subliminal. It's it's telling us like it's time. You know what? And hey, I want to speak out to this one thing. I have a little cause I would like to speak out on. Sure. The floor is yours. Yes, please. I uh, The man from New York yields the floor to the woman from Texas. I'm the gentle lady. Um, (laughs) Okay. So I really feel strongly that all the people who have a lot of anger towards anyone who decorates or starts celebrating anything having to do with Christmas prior to Thanksgiving, that there's something wrong with that. Okay. I have a whole different take. I do not separate gratitude and counting my blessings from Christmas. It is, it is not a situation for me where I just take stock of my life at Thanksgiving. I do it throughout the Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays. And so there is no reason to feel like, oh, I feel like someone's stealing my Thanksgiving, the gratitude portion of the year. I'm almost like giving a side eye at those people and wondering like, do you abandon gratitude and counting your blessings once Thanksgiving's over? And that's why it's okay to move to Christmas because man, I think it just is all that, that for me, the generosity and the spirit of giving and all of that is 
is Thanksgiving is a part of that. So I am super excited that people are putting up their lights and their trees and they're starting to feel that like extra bit of like, I mean, I got my Starbucks paid for me the other day and stuff like that's already happening. And I don't want to put a kibosh on that. So I hope people are just being sort of more open hearted, especially with a couple of years we've all had. Man, if it gives somebody a little bit of joy, let them have it, please. Thank you. I will get down on my off my soapbox and the floor is yours, New York. Listen, I begin listening to Petatonic's Christmas songs uh, after Labor Day. I, I'm not listening to anyone tell me you can't decorate, you can't start celebrating it, you can't be thinking, you know, being thankful for your blessings. I reject that. Halloween is not my holiday. Thanksgiving is not my holiday. Christmas is my holiday. I celebrate that year round. Tom, Tom and I share our Spotify account. And he opened it up about a week ago, and he's like, oh, 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 someone was in a Christmas mood, huh? He's like, just like that, like a little snot. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I was. I needed to hear pentatonics sing up, up, up on the rooftop. My man, you got a problem with that? I just want to say that uh, when I turned on the radio and we have the one station that plays Christmas music and it must start November 1st. I never really 100% paid attention the exact day. But when I turned it, it on and it was... And when it was playing the Charlie Brown Christmas song, I hit record and I sent that video to Mike and was like, it's happening <laughs> because it is. And you know what? It, this is the best time of year, not not because of gift giving, not because of shopping, not because of all the selfishness of it all. The generosity. It's the one time when when I feel like everybody acts the way they should, <laughs> you know, Oh, and on that note, this is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you guys for listening to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, leave us a five-star rating. We would most appreciate it. So we don't want to have to break into your house and live there for five months while you're down in Virginia. Cool? Cool. Call you a monkey's orphan. (laughs) Don't be a monkey's orphan. Don't do it. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.